If you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 7. We're going to have a speed lesson today. See how fast I can talk. Because we're going to try to cover the entire chapter. Our lesson today is called the Great Mabul. Now, you all, if you did your homework, you remember what that word means, right? In Hebrew, it means the flood. After 120 years of faithfulness, in spite of the lack of direct communication from heaven, Noah once more heard from the Lord God. And the words he heard are recorded for us in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 7. But we will be looking at the entire chapter, and here is our outline as we look at verses 1 to 24. We'll be talking about the invitation of God as he invites Noah and his family and all the animals into the ark. Then we'll look at the interval of grace, which was a seven-day period of time between Noah's actual entrance into the ark and the time when the flood struck. And then we'll look at the inundation of the globe. That will be by far our longest section because we'll talk about three areas of evidences for a worldwide flood. Was the flood global? Did it cover the entire earth or was it just regional? That's what we'll look at. And it was definitely global. So let's begin by looking at the invitation of God. And for this, we'll look at verses 1 to 3, all right? Genesis 7, verses 1 to 3. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come, thou and all thy house, into the ark, For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. Well, after more than a century of silence... When God again spoke to Noah, it was as a tender father calling to his child, calling him home, as the father sees in the distance the approach of a storm. Because Noah had placed his faith in God's word, not only God's word about the coming Savior, you know, the seed of the woman back in Genesis 3.15, but also about the coming judgment, and had put action to his faith by actually constructing the ark, which he had been told to build, God saw him as righteous. And we see that word in verse 1 of chapter 7. We saw it last week in the word just. It's the same word, but he was righteous. So Noah and the listed members of his family were divinely invited to come into the ark. Now, it's significant that God gave an invitation to enter into the ark, and not a command. Notice he did not say, go into the ark, did he? He said, come into the ark. God is still, in our present day, doing what? He is still inviting men and women and boys and girls into the ark. The ark is a picture of Christ. He is inviting. That's why it's appropriate to have an invitation when you give the gospel message, to invite people to come into the Lord Jesus Christ. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, the Lord said. So the invitation was given to Noah and his family, which consisted of his wife and his three sons and his three daughter-in-laws. God had promised Noah back in Genesis 6.18 that those particular family members, and of course he had others, but those particular ones would be, put, uh, would be saved in the ark, and of course he did keep his promise as we see now. Obviously, then, we know that they also believed 
in God's words and put action to their faith by actually entering into the ark along with Noah and a pair of all air-breathing creatures. In addition, we learn in verses 2 and 3 that God told Noah to take seven of each clean animal. So there would be, if you have seven, you have three pairs, don't you? You know, two, four, six, you have, and then you have one extra. The three pairs would perhaps supply some food sources, such as maybe eggs and milk, while they were on the ship. And they also, when they would disembark off of the ship, or the ark, they would ensure a greater proliferation of their own kind in the post-flood earth. You know, kind of compare, you can compare the three pairs of the clean animals or the domestic animals to the three pairs of Noah's sons and daughter-in-law so that, you know, they'd make sure there'd be a greater uh, reproduction of those, of not only humans, but of these particular kinds of animals. And then the seventh animal was probably the one that would be used for sacrificial purposes because when they got off the ark, what was one of the first things they did? They built an altar and they uh, sacrificed uh, an animal. Now, the reason that Noah and his family and all the pairs and all the sevens of animals were invited by God to go into the ark was because judgment was now imminent. It was just right around the corner. All it would take for a person back then to be safe from the wrath and the judgment of God was just a simple step of faith. All they would have to do as Noah and the members of his family that went into the ark was take that single step of faith and walk up the gangplank into the ark, right? And they would have been safe from all of the wrath of God that fell on the earth. And this is the same as it is with an individual today. All a person really has to do is believe God's word and take a step of faith forward and trust Christ, um, who bore the, the, uh, the storm of God's wrath for us. You know, just step into him. Just trust him. Ask him to come into your heart. You know, it's interesting, oh, as we go back to that word come, when God said come into the ark, what does that imply? It, sort, it really implies that God himself was inside the ark, right? Come, beckoning him to come in. God was in the ark when he was calling to, ark, uh, to Noah. And that's true for you and I, too. When we are in the midst of a storm, we are never alone. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Well, that's all I'm going to say about verses 1 to 3, the um, invitation. Now let's look at the interval of grace. And this is what we find in verses 4 to 9. God says, For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. Isn't that wonderful? We saw that back in verse 22 of chapter 6. Very, very godly, obedient man. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Verse 6, And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah unto, into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. Well, here we find that after inviting Noah and his family and all the animals into the ark, God made a rather surprising statement. He said that he would not send the rain upon the earth for another how many days? 
another seven days. He told them to go into the ark. They're now in the ark, but he's saying, I'm not going to send the storm for another seven days. And when those seven days ended, then he would cause the rain to come down for 40 days and 40 nights. He declared every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. Does that sound like a local flood to you? Not if you take his word seriously, it doesn't. Now, the Hebrew words for every living substance literally speaks of all that grows up. So what we have here is a reference to all existence, which includes not only all the creatures with the breath of life, air-breathing creatures, but vegetation as well. Would all the vegetation be destroyed? Yes, it would. He just said it. All those huge antediluvian forests and all the lush vegetation, which in those days, remember, covered the entire globe from pole to pole because there were no ice caps. There were no deserts. All that lush vegetation would be swept away by the mighty forces of the storm that was going to come. But before all this would begin to happen, God spoke of an extra seven days. That extra week of grace may have been in part to help Noah with all the uh, preparations of initially feeding the animals and getting them settled in their various nesting places within the ark. But it also, of course, may very well have been for the purpose of giving the lost of the world an additional week to change their minds and enter into the ark. Now, surely you would think that at least a few people would get very restless about Noah's words of coming judgment when two very exceptional things had just recently occurred to confirm all that he had been preaching about with regard to coming judgment. Do you know what those two things might have been? One of them was that Methuselah would have just died because remember what his name means? When he dies, it will come. And everybody in the world knew what his name meant because everybody then spoke the same language. And so when he died, which he must have just died recently, right before this happened, because he died the same year as the flood. And this is when the flood comes, it's only the second month of the year. So he must have just recently died. Second thing that should have gotten the people's attention was when they began to see pairs of every kind of air-breathing creature in existence migrate from all directions of the world. Some of them had probably been doing this for quite a while, but they all finally um, got to the ark and then went into the ark. I mean, that would kind of get your attention, wouldn't it? It would certainly get mine. You'd think they would get highly suspicious that something was about to happen. You know, according to the Lord Jesus's own words in Matthew 24, verse 38, he had said that the people of Noah's day were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until, did you ever notice this before? Until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Apparently, now see, we just learned that he entered the ark seven days before the flood. Apparently, the regular pattern of the antediluvian population, their, the regular pattern of their carefree lifestyles halted on the day that Noah and his family and all the animals entered into the ark. Yet, still, we find that no one stepped forward to join them. No one, you know, extra went in. Instead, it seems that everything stopped and they were probably watching and waiting. And after a whole day, a whole day went by and Noah 
And all those animals were in the ark a whole day, and they were probably watching the skies, and nothing happened. They probably breathed a little bit freer. freer. And then a second day went by. Then three days, four days, five days, six days. And by this time, can't you imagine that they were all back to mocking Noah and saying, what a fool, what a fool. There he is, spent six whole days in that ark with all those stinking animals. He's, just like we said, all these 120 years, he's lost it. And during that entire interval of seven days, not one additional person took a step of faith forward to place his trust in God's word. You see, they were all uniformitarians, just like we have today, a world full of uniformitarians, people that believe that nothing will ever change from the way things have always been from the very beginning. They denied the reality of God intervening with a catastrophic judgment. But they were wrong, weren't they? When that seventh day came, they found out the hard way that they were wrong. They were dead wrong. Just as the scoffers of these last days that you and I live in, those who laugh at our teaching regarding the, you know, the flood, the creation to begin with, and the flood, our, our teaching regarding the rapture of the church, the seven years of the tribulation, and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are also wrong. They may laugh at us now, but they will not laugh when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. As the men and women of Noah's day mocked him with words like, where is the promise of his coming? For all things continue as they were from the beginning of the of the creation, so do the men and women scorn today Bible-believing Christians such as you and I with the very same words. Essentially, even if they don't say them, that's what they're thinking. And Peter said of such people that they were willingly ignorant. They are willingly ignorant. You know why? It tells us in Romans 1, and it tells us in John 3, 19, it's because they love their what? They love their sin, so they are willingly ignorant. In Genesis 7, 5, we are once again told of the faithful obedience of Noah. It says he did according to all that God commanded him. And then in verse 6, we are told that Noah at this time was how old? 600 years old. So old Noah, you got to admit, everybody in this room has to admit that that's old. Old Noah, along with his family and all the animals, entered into the ark, as it tells us in verses 7 to 9. And then, after remaining inside for seven days, what happened? The great Mabul. The storm began. So let's look at the inundation of the globe, verses 11 to 24. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were open, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all fresh, 
flesh, excuse me, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift above the earth, and the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. That's 22 feet. And the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth. All flesh died upon the earth. Both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in 150 days. Does that sound like a local flood? Not unless you have a really good imagination. All right, in this third main division of our outline, we are going to consider three important evidences for why the flood of Noah's day was global and not just local. It's critical, really, for us to do this because a worldwide flood, which literally destroyed the whole antediluvian race besides Noah and his family and the animals on the boat, and all the vegetation has absolutely tremendous implication regarding your view of theology, period, and your view of history, and your view of anthropology, and your view of geology, and paleontology, and really all the sciences which have to do with the history of mankind. If indeed the Bible means what it clearly seems to imply with a natural reading, which is what we just did, And it clearly seems to imply that God did sovereignly intervene in the affairs of men and in the processes of nature by way of a catastrophism, um, the global flood, then mankind should very seriously consider what the Bible prophetically warns about another judgment yet to come, another global judgment, rather than holding to a uniformitarian view that the existing physical processes which can be seen and tested in our own present world account for all past changes in the universe and that there is no possibility of past or future miraculous alteration of those processes by their creator, men should be willing to consider the evidence which is readily available, I mean everywhere available, to support a flood which once inundated this entire globe. There is strong support, not only from the Bible itself, but from the sciences for a past worldwide flood. You know, it really wasn't until the last two centuries that even those within Christendom began to turn from taking the Bible, the Bible's account of the, you know, the creation and the Noahic Flood at face value. Up until the 1800s, everybody essentially took it at face value and believed the creation account, believed the the account of the worldwide flood. However, as you probably well know, 
it is now quite common to find that the majority in Christendom, including many who are evangelical, have been, they have been influenced by the philosophies of uniformity, uniformity and evolution so that they argue against a global flood in favor of a mere regional or local flood. Many have been influenced, sad to say. A local flood concept, you see, does not interfere with, a, uh, with non-supernatural historic conformity. In other words, you know, you can have a local flood and not have God really intervening in the affairs of mankind. And it doesn't interfere with scientific naturalism or receive, of course, the, the, uh, the scoffing uplifted eyebrow of modern scholarship. You know, that, that look like, are you crazy? You really believe in the flood, the, lo- the global flood? So what we're going to do at this point in our study is present a- uh, evidence from three main avenues to support the global flood, the worldwide flood at the time of Noah. And this in no way is going to be an exhaust- exhaustive study, but I hope maybe if you're interested in this subject, you can do a little more research on your own. I do give you sources in the notes, and the notes are much more extensive that I'm going to have time to talk about today. So do be sure to read your notes and share them with your husbands or anyone who maybe is not quite so sure about this flood business because there is plenty of evidence out there that there was indeed a global flood. Now, in verses 11 and 12, just as back in verse 6, we are again told that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came upon the earth. In fact, as I said, we're even told the exact date when that judgment arrived. On that prophesied day for the end of the pre-flood world, all of the fountains of the great deep were broken up and, and the windows of heaven were opened. That's what it tells us at the end of verse 11. In our study last year of the creation week, we learned that on the second day of creation, God made the firmament or the atmosphere above our earth. And in doing this, remember, he divided the waters of the earth by um, placing some of those waters above the firmament or above the atmosphere and placing some of them under the atmosphere on the actual planet on earth. The waters under the atmosphere were then on the third day gathered together so that dry land emerged. And the waters, those waters were the ones on the earth, were in a liquid state and they formed the antediluvian seas, which were probably not the same, you know, as our oceans today, and also formed some rivers. Remember, we read about four rivers in uh, Genesis chapter 2. Since there was no rainfall in the pre-flood world, those rivers must have been continuously fed through a system of underground springs, probably very deeply seated below the surface of the earth. The waters above the firmament, very possibly, we've talked about this quite a bit, very possibly made up a vast transparent water vapor canopy, which went around the complete globe giving the the earth a very even tropical kind of climate and also preventing both wind and rainstorms. They didn't have typhoons. They didn't have hurricanes and tornadoes in the pre-flood world. Plus, they didn't have rainstorms. Well, when the prophesied time came for God's promised judgment upon the ungodliness of that antediluvian world, all that the Creator had to do 
I mean, it's not difficult for him. All he had to do was bring back together those two vast bodies of waters which he had originally created and separated. On the second day, he separated them. Now all he had to do was bring them back together again. So he somehow or another, either by just his spoken word or by use of some physical processes, caused the vast quantities of water which extended out into space above the earth in the water vapor canopy to be condensed and then to be precipitated on the earth while the waters below the surface of the earth were divinely permitted to burst forth in massive, terrible eruptions all over the entire globe. It's interesting to notice, if you will, in verse uh, 11, that we read that the fountains of the great deep were broken up before, we read that first, before we are then told that the windows of heaven were open. Now, the Hebrew word for broken up actually means cleaved open. Because this is mentioned first, you know, that the underground waters broke open or cleaved open first, we can perhaps assume that, that it was the breaking forth of these subterranean reservoirs underneath the Earth's surface which resulted in the downpour from the breakage of the water vapor canopy. Now let me just say this real quick because I want it to be on the tape and you may not understand it but you can review it in your notes. According to Dr. Henry Morris who is a professor, was a professor, got his PhD in hydrology and hydraulics and is the president of the Institute for Creation Research, one of the co-authors of the Genesis Flood, he said the most likely cause for a sudden release of the whole underground system on the same day. Now, remember, this is on the same day it happened. So everything all over the earth would break forth on the same day would have been a rapid building up and surging forth of intense pressure throughout the entire subterranean water system. And this, in turn, would have probably been caused by a very quick rise in temperature you know, from the core of the earth all throughout this system. The pressure rise caused by God's divine permission, perhaps through a series of nuclear reactions involving the heavy elements deep in the earth, or perhaps by way of various combinations of seismic and volcanic activity, may have resulted in the first fountain of the great deep breaking loose. Then the pressurized fluid which would have erupted out into the air, you know, kind of like a volcano just erupting. All that fluid would break out into the air and weakened other fractures, other cracks, causing a global chain reaction so that all the fountains, as we're told in the scripture, of the great deep were cleaved open. The volcanic explosions and other eruptions which would have gone hand in hand with this kind of activity would have spewed forth immense quantities of magma from the Earth's mantle along with the tremendously huge amounts of volcanic dust and gigantic sprays of water up into the atmosphere. The resulting combination of atmospheric turbulence, volcanic dust, and other particles, and expanding and cooling gases may have then penetrated the water vapor canopy above the earth, causing yet another chain reaction to set off so that its waters, you know, around the earth, began to then condense and combine and fall downward upon the earth in a torrential global downpour. So you have waters coming from up under the earth, and, you know, the, the atmospheric pressure just does something and breaks that canopy around the earth. So you not only have waters coming up, but you have 
waters coming down. It speaks, the word windows used in verse 11 speaks of floodgates, floodgates. There was apparently a great, I mean, that's just a small word for what it was, a great, great quantity of water, which was formally held in restraint above the earth, but which was suddenly released by God himself to inundate the earth below in divine judgment. And that it did, according to verse 12, because we are told that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 11 really can refer to nothing else, and verse 12, but the collapse, really, if you think about it, it can refer to nothing else but the collapse of a global, stupendous, transparent water vapor canopy, um, which existed back then, because of the fact that it did take 40 days of steady, hard rain, 40 days and 40 nights, to expel all of that water. And that stands in stark contrast to what could happen today in the world that, as we know it. If, all, if we would take all the water vapor in the atmosphere, all the clouds, and precipitate them at the same time down to our earth today, the rain would only last for a few hours. And the average depth would only be a little less than two inches. So that's why they believe that there was this massive water vapor canopy around the earth, which fits with everything we are told in the scripture. If you are interested in studying that more, I recommend the book, The World We Live In, or I mean, The World That Perish. There's another one called The World We Live In, um, or The Genesis Flood. If you're really deep into understanding all this, The Genesis Flood is a little difficult. Um, the bottom line, really, however, is that the same God who created the entire universe, which included, of course, the earth and its dry land and its waters, also caused those waters to em- totally immerse the land so that all living flesh and vegetation was destroyed except for Noah and his family and those anim- animals that were on the ark. God completely upset the balance. Oops. The, the delicate balances of the primeval continents and oceans, and he initiated a catastrophe so gigantic that the world that then was perished, as it says in Second Peter 3, 6, being overflowed with water. Now, if we can truly depend on the Bible in its natural reading, then we would expect to find geological evidence to affirm a worldwide flood, which continued for 40 days and 40 nights. Especially would this be true um, if, if the water vapor canopy erupted and all those global eruptions came from the, the, beneath the earth. We would find evidence as we looked at all of our land formations around us. A flood of this magnitude would have definitely destroyed all of the pre-flood features So when you think of the pre-flood in Noah's day, don't think of the same kind of mountain ranges we have today. They were not as high. The mountain ranges were not as high. The oceans were not the same. Probably the continents were not the same. So a flood of this magnitude would have totally changed the topography of the pre-flood world world from the world we know it. Um, And it would have redeposited the eroded materials everywhere in the stratified sedimentary rocks of the Earth's crust. Dr. Morris, again, I quote from him, he says, not only do such sedimentary rocks abound all over the world, but they give much evidence of having been formed by rapid 
and continuous depositional processes. Each individual stratum is a distinct sedimentary unit and in most formations can be shown by hydraulic analysis to have been formed within a few minutes' time. Few minutes, not millions and billions of years. For example, he says, if it is assumed that the average thickness of the sedimentary rocks around the world is about one mile, and the average rate of deposition during flooding conditions is one inch of compacted sediment every five minutes, then it would take 220 days to form the entire geologic column a mile long, a mile thick. 220 days, not 220 billion or million years. Well, throughout the entire world, uh, in a variety of different places, I'm going to give you some evidences now from geology for why there was a worldwide flood. You can find, if you would go and look, you would find large reserves of animal bones, and these are found in great rents or fissures or you want to just call them tears, like an earthquake would um, result in, a big tear in the ground. They're filled with animal bones. Um, And these collections of bone rubble were apparently placed there by water during the time when those big rents or fissures in the ground actually occurred. So, you know, you're they, they know that water took all those animal bones and dropped them down into these big holes or, or cracks in the ground. And, and you can find them. You can go around the world and find them. The fascinating thing about these bone collections is that they are filled with bones of all kinds of animals. They're filled with uh, elephants, elephant bones, rhinoceros bones, horses, uh, pigs, oxen, you name it. And even though their skeletons are not intact, I mean, they're all kind of torn apart, apart, and they're all thrown together, um, they're there in unbelievable abundance. And that's really interesting because these are usually animals which, a lot of them are animals which are natural enemies of one another. And there they are all in these great big, you know, piles together. And they're usually found, this is also interesting, Um, on isolated hills of considerable height. Now, if you were an animal and you were running from a coming flood, as the flood waters were getting higher and higher, where would you go? You'd go to hills. Now, some examples, again, you can check your notes, but, for example, the Rock of Gibraltar, you've all heard of that, has uh, bone-filled fissures or rents in the ground 300 feet deep, big cracks filled with bones. Palermo, Sicily, there's a cavern that has been discovered which contains nearly 20 tons of bones. Northwest Nebraska, here in the United States, there is a single hill in Nebraska which has been estimated to contain some 9,000 complete animals, their bones. In uh, a place near Corfu, there is a mountain which is called the Mountain of the Bones, and that's because from the base of the mountain to the summit, it is literally covered with skeletons. And there are other such examples all over the world. Only a great flood of waters could have driven so many animals, which were natural enemies of each other, together on hilltops and other isolated places and have caused them to perish in such vast numbers all at the same time. How else would you explain it? 
Then there's the existence of fossils in the sedimentary deposits of the Earth's crust. And this is a further evidence. I know the evolutionists would tell us otherwise, but this is a evidence of a, a worldwide catastrophism. These fossils were created rapidly because the preservation of fossils, in case you didn't know it, requires rapid burial and uh, what they call lithification or hardening. It has to happen fast. Otherwise, when a creature dies, what happens? He decays or he's eaten by scavengers. You know, you don't see fossils being formed today. You just don't see it. Evolutionists, of course, have maintained that most of the Earth's strata, you know, the geologic column, was laid down very slowly over millions and millions of years. However, the fossils within those sedimentary layers of the strata very clearly tell us of rapid burial. You know, we live literally on a vast graveyard, a fossil graveyard, which is filled with evidence. All you have to do is dig a couple feet into the ground, you'll find evidence of catastrophism rather than natural uh, evolutionism. In fact, whole dinosaurs have been discovered, uh, buried almost instantly in sediments and preserved through the centuries. And in northern Asia, in Siberia, in an area which stretches 2,000 miles along the uh, Arctic Ocean, an area which is so thoroughly frozen that only a few feet of the topmost soil ever thaws out, and that's only for a couple weeks during the middle of summer. In that area, literally thousands upon thousands of mammoths have been found, and many of these mammoths are still intact. And when I say intact, I mean intact. Not only their bones, but their internal organs, their skin, their hair, their tusks. Their tusks weigh anywhere from 180 pounds to 200 pounds each. Huge things. They, they stood 13 or 14 feet high. I mean, you know, a man would only be down to his legs. Huge things. Um, but they've even found one that had buttercups still on his tongue. And they're stand many of them are standing or they're kneeling. I mean, they're just like they were instantly frozen. Uh, experts estimate that as many as five million of these creatures, whose tusks alone are some nine and ten feet long, that they perished at one single moment in time. And the very best explanation for how these mighty, mighty creatures could have been overwhelmed, you know, five million of them at one time in a moment of time, so, so instantly, it would have to be 150 degrees below zero to freeze them the way they're frozen, with even their internal organs intact. The only way would be a worldwide flood which was so drastic that it caused the northern areas of this glo globe, which, you know, had once been tropical, and they know they were once tropical because they f find evidence of that, to suddenly become arctic, you know, thereby freezing them instantly in huge chunks of ice. Now, the man who invented or is called by Charles Darwin, the, the father of uniformitarianism, knew about these mammoths. And he tried to explain them away by saying, well, they were swimming and they got stuck in a, a cold snap and they all froze to death. That just totally does not fit the facts. I mean, five million of them were swimming and they all got 
And they're not even swimming. Most of them are not swimming at all. So it's just ridiculous. Charles Darwin knew about the mammoths, and he said they definitely presented a serious problem. Well, furthermore, there are marine fossils. Okay, you know what I mean when I say marine? Water, you know, ocean fossils found on the tops of mountains all over the world. And this very much discouraged the evolutionists when they began climbing back in the 19th century. Because no matter how high they climbed, they always found that the rocks brought forth fossils of marine animals and ocean fish and shells of all kinds of mollusks. Even the skeleton of a whale has been found on the top of Mount Sanhorn on the Arctic coast. Now explain that one. <laughs> and there are also numerous examples of bodies of water in uh, present-day desert areas. Sometimes I don't have a picture, so I just show you something else. All right, This is not a desert area, but there are a lot of what they call inland bodies of water or fossil lakes and they are best explained by a global flood. In other words, they know that in the past some of these lakes were huge. One of them I read covered the entire Great Lakes region. Another one covered most of the state of New York. Another one covered not only Minnesota, North Dakota, but the Canadian provinces, and these are big provinces, of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario. I mean, huge inward lakes far from the oceans that we have today. And uh, they can't explain. A, a flood, only a flood of the size described in the Bible would give willing geologists, see that's the key, they have to be willing, um, a satisfactory explanation for these mysterious lakes which they found so far inland. And coal is another geological evidence for biblical catastrophism. Although it was once thought that coal had to take millions of years to form. They now know today, it's been proven in um, laboratory settings, that coal can be created very, very rapidly. There is no evidence today of coal being created in modern swamps or anywhere else in nature. So what caused the Earth's vast deposits of coal? And the same question we could ask about a lot of other mineral, uh, a lot of other substances in the earth as well, such as the vast amount of oil fields we have in our earth. It is very scientifically possible for the earth's coal beds and also the oil fields to have been created at one time through the burial of large quantities of vegetation and animal matter by global flood activity. And this thinking fits very well with the fact that coal deposits are always found in sediments deposited there by water. And they are commonly associated also with huge masses of marine fossils. So there it is. There's the evidence. I mean, just look at it with willing eyes. It's also interesting to know that throughout the world, fossilized trees, okay, like I've got here in this picture, are buried in the sedimentary layers. Uh, the trees seem to have sunk to the bottom of tremendous floodwaters and been buried. And this happened when, you know, uh, Mount St. Helens erupted. In fact, fossilized trees are found in, at all kinds of various angles, as you see in this picture, in the sedimentary layers, or even standing upright, or even upside down. I explain how a tree got upside down like that, okay? 
like here's the root of it and here's the top of the tree. And um, sometimes these petrified logs are even found buried in layers of coal and mud. Sometimes, and this is really the interesting part, sometimes even extending through multiple layers of the strata, which evolutionary evolutionists would tell us, you know, that each one of these strata here took millions of years to lay. And yet, there are petrified logs which extend through multiple layers of the strata. Now explain that one. You can't. <laughs> with, with your uniformitarian mindset. You cannot explain it. So the tree fossils are another indication that the strata of the geologic column was laid down quickly under flood conditions, not over millions of years. The sediments of the earth do not exhibit strong evidence of evolution either. And these... Um, these different layers here. With simple animals, you know how they tell us that the simple animals came first, the protozoans, the one-celled animals, and then they, they progressed and got more and more complex. Well, so if you looked at the strata of the geologic column, you'd expect to find all the simple atoms, uh, animals at the bottom, and they would get progressively more complex, and you'd find the most complex animals at the top, right? Well, this is not what the geologic column shows us. Go out there and dig for a while. You'll find it's true. What they find is that the, the fossils are random. I mean, you'll find simple, then you'll find complex, then you might find simple, then you might find complex. Or sometimes they're even totally upside down, where the complex animals are the ones at the bottom. And that makes sense if you have a flood, because the heavy elephants, all right, what are they going to do? They're going to sink to the bottom. So they're going to be at the bottom, and the lightweight little creatures are going to be at the top, and that's exactly what you find if you go to these places. Go to the Grand Canyon. The Institute for Creation Research will show you all this stuff. You can look at it. There it is, evidence, proving a worldwide flood. Also, when the carbon-14 dating method is correctly calibrated and 25,000 radiocarbon dates are graphed, the result is that there is evidence of a tremendous, tremendous peak of death about 4,000 years ago. When was the flood? About 4,000 years ago. Tremendous increase of death at that time. And I could go on and on, but I won't because I'm running out of time. Geology may not be able to absolutely prove the global flood, to the unbeliever, but it certainly does not disprove it. Actually, for the person who believes God's word, geology, geology demonstrates that there is no reason not to take the Bible literally when it speaks of a worldwide catastrophic flood at the time of Noah. Truthfully, the, the real truth of the matter is that the world, the whole world, is absolutely full of testimony to the fact that God's word is true. And speaking of God's word, let's go to the second evidence and look at evidence from God's word itself that the flood was global and not local. As mentioned previously, and I'm not going to reread the verses, but they're 13 through 24, even many conservative Christians conservative, even evangelical Christians, have allowed themselves to ignore the importance of the flood. You know, although they, they would say that they, they profess 
belief in the divine inspiration of the scripture, many of them, sad to say, have become intimidated by evolutionary geologists and paleontologists, those are those who study fossils, who insist, of course, that the history of the earth can be explained by the slow development of natural processes over billions of years. So many of our colleagues, our evangelical conservative Christian colleagues, have become influenced and intimidated by these guys. And as a consequence of yielding to these vain philosophies of the unregenerate mind, many Christians have attempted to compromise the mabul, of Noah's day by declaring, yes, okay, it was a local flood. And I'm not just saying this because I have plenty of commentaries and lots of them say, yes, this was just a local flood. And only Noah just thought it was global because as he looked out the window of his ark, it looked like it was global to him. Uh, They say perhaps it was just a mighty overflow of the Euphrates River or some other major river of that day located in the Middle East. However, no matter what these people may choose to believe, it can be demonstrated from the Bible itself that the Bible definitely clearly teaches a universal flood, not a regional flood. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time developing this, but, for example, there are more than 30 times in Genesis 6 through 9, which talks about the flood, those uh, four chapters, 6, 7, 8, 9, yeah, four chapters, where expressions are used to speak of the universality of the flood. And I think the Holy Spirit used these words over and over again just to get our attention that this was worldwide. I mean, he says such things as all the high hills that were under the whole heaven and all the flesh died. And you can just go on and on and underline every one of them and see what I'm talking about. Also, it says that the flood involved a continual downpour of 40 days and 40 nights And that would be impossible under current uniformitarian processes. Just impossible. Also, the ark was much too big. Why would God have Noah build such a huge ark if he only had to save the local animals? You know, wouldn't need such a huge ark. And uh, also, the rise in floodwaters had to be at least 20 feet because the the ark was 44 feet high, and it was heavily loaded. And so about half of its uh, height would be sunk down into the water. And so in order to pass over the tops of mountains, that the water had to be at least 22 feet above the mountains. And even though those mountains weren't as high in that day as they are today, that's not talking about a local flood. All right? Also, three times in chapter 7, we are told that the waters prevailed. And the Hebrew word for prevailed means were overwhelmingly mighty. Now, Moses would have had to really be exaggerating if he was speaking of just a local flood. Furthermore, it says in Job 12:15 that the waters overturned the earth. We also have 2 Peter 3, 6, which says that the world that then was being overflowed with water did what? perished. We're also told in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 7 that the waters prevailed exceedingly upon all the earth, and so that even all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered by 15 cubits, and it says even the mountains were covered. In verse 21, the scripture clearly states that all the flesh died that moved upon the earth. And if that was speaking just of a local flood, why in the world would all flesh die? I mean, you know, when there's a local flood like we had a year ago down in the East Coast, um, people can, 
a few people might die, but not everybody dies in a local flood, especially, you know, creatures. They can, they can run off somewhere else, and birds can fly away. Verse 22 says, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. Verse 23 says, every living substance was destroyed on the face of the earth. And then we are told additionally that only Noah and those who were with him remained alive. How do you take that and say, well, it was just an overflowing of the Euphrates River? And you can't say you believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture and say that. You just can't. The statement that says the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 years again has to indicate, see that means, I mean not years, days, that after the 40 days and 40 nights of steady rain, for an additional 110 days, the water stayed at its highest level, which was 22 feet over the mountains. We know it took them a year before they could disembark from the ark. That rhymes, disembark from the ark. That's not a local flood, no matter how you look at it. Now, even though this evidence is not in Chapter 7, I do want to share this one because I think this is very, very important. God promised Noah that he would never again send such a flood. Did he not? Now, God is a liar if that was a local flood because over and over And over again, this world has experienced local or regional floods. So there you have it. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about is the evidence of the global flood from traditions. And this is really interesting. If indeed a worldwide flood took place and all human beings across the face of the entire world are the descendants of only eight survivors then it would be natural to expect to find some record of the global catastrophe in the ancient records of people groups everywhere. You know, no matter where you'd go in the world, would not you expect to find some kind of story about a one-time world flood? I mean, other than from the scripture. Well, this is precisely what has been found, because legends and mythologies of nations and tribes literally all around the world contain accounts of a time long ago when the earth was covered totally with water. The people having these stories, although they vary in some of their details, must have them because of their common descent from the flood's actual survivors. Now, anthropologists have collected at least 59 flood legends just from North America, 46 flood legends from Central and South America, 31 from Europe, 17 from the Middle East, 23 from Asia, and 37 from the South Sea Islands and Australia. And although, of course, it's impossible for me to give all of them to you, I do want to give you a sample of some of them in order to demonstrate our point that such numerous ancient accounts of a universal flood has to give evidence of the fact that this flood actually did occur. From excavations done in the ancient city of Nineveh, which was once the capital of Assyria, they have found cuneiform inscribed tablets that tell of a worldwide flood which was brought about by the wickedness of men and women. 
It also tells about the selection of animals and people that were saved by being taken into a large ship the size of a huge cube. All right, now some of these details are not going to match up with Scripture, but just listen to the main idea of it. You know, we know the ark was not a cube, it was a rectangle. Also, this account from ancient Nineveh speaks about a raven and a dove and a swallow, they added that, (laughs) um, being sent out of the ship. And then after the flood, there was a thanksgiving offering which was made to the gods. And the account ends, I mean, this has actually been found. The account ends with a covenant which guaranteed that the earth would never again be destroyed in such a way. And there are similar stories of destructive flood and, uh, the destructive flood and the salvation of a few people, just a few human beings, which literally abound among our own American natives, the Indians, the American Indians. On the West Coast, we have the Athapaskan tribe, which tells of a story in which only one man, I can't pronounce his name, is saved alive by riding on the head of a mythological figure named Earth. And this was a flood story. He was saved, you know, by riding on the head of that mythological figure. Then the Arapaho Indians tell how the first Arapaho escaped a world flood by sitting on a high mountain. The Algonquin Indians tell about a great evil that a great evil snake brought a flood upon all human beings and how only some were saved by the daughter of one of the spirits who helped them get into a boat. Then the Indians of Peru say that many years before there were any Incas in the world, everyone was drowned by a great flood. Only six people survived, and they survived on a huge raft. The people who originally inhabited Cuba, they have a story. They believed that an old man knew ahead of time that the flood was coming, and so he built a great ship, and he went into it with his family and with a whole lot of animals. And then, after getting very weary from the long days of the flood, he sent out a crow which at first did not return because it fed on decaying, floating bodies. But after a while, it came back to the ship with a green branch in its mouth. In Mexico, they have a man named uh, Coxcox who saved himself and his family and some animals from a great flood by getting into a boat. As the flood began to subside, he sent out a vulture, which did not return. And then, this is interesting, then he sent out a hummingbird, (laughs) which did return, carrying a branch with green leaves. The natives of Alaska believe that the father of their ancestors was warned in a dream of a coming flood which would destroy the whole world. So he built a big raft and he saved himself and his family and some animals. Well, the animals back then, Dr. Doolittle, they could talk. And so after a while, the animals began to complain about being on the raft after so many long months. So when the waters finally went down and everybody got to get back onto the dry land, the animals were punished by losing their ability to speak. The Hottentots call the father of their race, no, N-O-H, 
the original natives of Greenland have a tradition which states that ten generations of men lived on the earth before the flood, and only one man was saved. Now, I want you to know Noah was the tenth generation from Adam, so they're right on that. The Hawaiians say that there was great wickedness on the earth in the old days, and only one man was righteous, and his name was Nu'u. He made a great canoe. There's another poem. Nu'u made a canoe. (laughs) A canoe with a house on it. And he filled it with plants and animals. And he escaped on it when the flood came. When the flood ended and he saw the moon for the first time, he thought it was C-A-N-E, Cain, the great God. So he worshipped it. He worshipped the moon. And this made Cain very angry. So Cain came down a rainbow (laughs) to reprove him. Then after Cain returned to heaven, the rainbow remained as a token of Cain's forgiveness. The people of Wales have a legend which speaks of one of their lakes bursting forth and overflowing all the land. Everyone was drowned except one man and pairs of every kind of animal. The Lithuanians tell about their supreme god named Pramzimus, who decided to destroy everyone by a great flood. After 20 days, only a few people remained on a great mountain, and they also would have drowned if Pramzimus had not accidentally dropped the shell of a peanut he was eating, or a nut. And the people used that shell as a boat, and they were saved. Traditions from India and China tell of similar stories. Now, here's an interesting one from the Hindus in India. The Hindus believe that Manu, M-A-N-U, Manu, listen to the last part, Nu, anyway, Manu is the father of their race. Manu had been warned of a coming flood by a fish who told him to build a big ship and to put into it all kinds of seeds along with seven holy beings. When the flood came, all the people drowned. However, Manu's ship was pulled to safety by the fish who finally took it to the highest peak of the Himalaya mountains. And in this story, eight people were saved, and Manu is actually called righteous among his generation. And what is even more amazing is that in the Hindu story, Manu, after the flood, became drunk and lay uncovered until he was cared for by two of his three sons. In China, there is a legend of Fo He, who escaped the great deluge with his wife, three sons, and his three daughters. And from them, all of the earth was repopulated. And then a man who lived in around 250 B.C., an actual man named Manith. Manitho wrote of a flood story which was presented in the ancient myths of the Egyptians in which a single man named Toth was saved. And this is just a sample, okay, of some of these legends which are just everywhere in the world. All of these many, many universal legends and myths and traditions must have a common origin. 
even though, of course, they've been exaggerated and changed in a lot of different ways, still they contain enough information to tell us that there must have been a worldwide flood at one point in ancient history. The flood apparently so impressed the minds of those few survivors, which you can imagine, Noah and his family, that they made a vivid point of passing it on to their children and made sure that they, you know, told them to have their children pass it down to their children, etc., etc., so that what happened at the time of the great flood would never be forgotten. So it's an impressive evidence to me that there was indeed a true biblical global flood at one point in time. Well, I want to close this lesson by going back to <clears throat> Genesis 7:16, which says, And they that went in to the ark went in male and female of all flesh as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. You know, Noah did not have to get his sons to help him somehow or another close that door and seal it shut so that the waters wouldn't get into the boat. The Lord himself shut them in without the assistance of any human hands at all. So those inside the ark were sealed securely by the very hands of God himself, were they not? They were. The rains could come. The deeps could burst forth, the waves could rage, the winds could blow, but nothing, nothing would touch those sealed safely in the ark by Jehovah God himself. That which he shuts, no man can open. When a person responds by faith to the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ to enter into his eternal rest... You know, acknowledging that he, as the ark, took all of the brunt of the storm of judgment on his or her behalf and even died in that storm in our place, then that person can know, can know, K-N-O-W, that he is shut in and sealed securely by who? By God himself. What God shuts, no man can open. Do you know what that means? That is talking about the eternal security of the believer. If you truly are born again, you need not worry that you can lose your salvation. You cannot. God himself has sealed it shut. 